1. Um, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Hi, how is everyone today? Good. So quiet. Wow. So we've been going through a series as a church um, called Spiritual Vitality, where we focus on different disciplines. Um, If I could get the slide up, that would be great. Different disciplines that we should be walking out in our daily lives as Christians. And this week we are focusing on servanthood. But of course I think you guys all know that servanthood doesn't mean just simply doing the things that we do at church one time a week. But it's something that we continuously need to walk in. And today we're going to explore that is actually God's intention, God's design for us to walk in a constant posture of worship from the right motivation. And before I go into that and explore the details of the verses in which we talked about just earlier, I want us first to take a look at Genesis and Genesis 3 in particular. So if you don't have your Bibles, um, I encourage you to, or if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open it up. If you have your phones, open that up as well. Genesis 3. Because it's important for us to take a look at this to sort of frame where we're going to launch into together as we look at the scriptures. Because in Genesis, what we see here, especially in Genesis 3, is an undoing of God's perfect plan for humanity. And even though Genesis 3 is short, there is actually seven things that we can find within these scriptures that the devil did in order to take people away from God. And we're not going to focus on all seven things today. That's, you know, I've spoke about that before. But we're going to focus specifically on one thing. And that is, what was the temptation of Adam and Eve? Because it's very important for us to realize, because that same thing, I believe, is the root of most sins in our lives today. What was the temptation? I used to believe that it was the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve wanted to acquire knowledge. But then I realized it's kind of part of the puzzle, but not quite. Perhaps it's the fruit. The fruit was delicious looking. It was um, pleasing to the eye. So therefore, they just couldn't help themselves and they just took it and ate it. But I believe that's part of the puzzle, but not quite. I believe the answer actually lies in Genesis chapter 4. So I'm just going to go through a bit of Genesis and then we'll land at chapter 4. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the creatures the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat from the trees of the garden, but for the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God says, Do not eat it, or shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The temptation for Adam and Eve wasn't necessarily just the knowledge of good and evil. 
And it wasn't the delicious looking fruit. It was to be like God. And what we see here is that at that moment, Adam and Eve elevated themselves above God. And so we see a cascading effect that happens through the generations. You see it through the Old Testament. And we know, and we'll talk about this, what Jesus did in order to, I guess, release us from that. But then we also see the effects of that in our lives sometimes today. Self-elevation. I mean, in Genesis 11, we know the story about the Tower of Babel, how they made a huge tower reaching the heavens. Why did they do that? The Bible says that they wanted to make a name for themselves, to be above God, self-elevation. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus is called the last Adam. Just as death came out of Adam, life is birthed through Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ, and is that I no longer live, but Christ that now lives in me. And the life in which I live in the flesh, I now live in faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is the premise in which I want to launch us into our message today, is that Jesus has had authority over self, and self was crucified with Jesus. And the beginning of true servanthood requires a submission to Jesus under his authority. And Jesus sets, and the beauty is Jesus sets a, the example for us all. And let's take a look at the first one, the feet washing. We know this story very well. In fact, it's quite iconic, I think, in the Christian world, where God, Jesus, in flesh, comes down. The guy that's supposed to have all the glory, he goes down to earth and he washes his disciples' feet. I don't know how much you know about the cultural context of the day when it comes to the hierarchy of servanthood, but the people that washed the feet of the guests that came in, they were at the lowest pecking order. Some people may be on the higher hierarchy, higher area of the hierarchy. They would perhaps serve food or attend to the business. But people who were at the lowest pecking order, they were the ones who washed feet. Yet Jesus gets on his knees and he washes his disciples' feet. And he says in John 13, 14, now that I, your teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I want to ask you, we don't, we don't really have that society structure, I guess, within our context. We don't have slaves. We don't have necessarily servants waiting on us. But what could that look like in our modern context? If we are called to walk as Jesus did, to wash each other's feet, what does that look like? For our context. And I was thinking about this. Um, it could be simply serving the homeless. I've got a friend. Uh, she's, in, she's in Melbourne. She's married now. And her and her husband, and I really admire her for this, her and her husband have a heart for 
homeless people. What they would do is they would go into the city at night, afternoon, night, and they would talk to homeless people that were there, start conversation, get to know them. And then after they build that relationship and they get to know the personality, they invite them over to their house for dinner. Now, there are many reasons why people don't do that. You don't know if your stuff will get stolen. You know, you're inviting a stranger in. But yet, this is something that God has really impressed upon their heart. Perhaps it's sacrificing your time for someone, even though it's inconvenient for you. I think sometimes we take servanthood not very seriously. We do it only when it conveniences us. But that's not the type of attitude and heart that Jesus desires. So the attitude of servanthood should really underline the whole Christian life. Jesus modelled it in all through his ministry. And if he modelled it, it should really be the way in which we behave and walk as we journey through this life. So Matthew 20, 26, Jesus tells us, Whoever wants to be great among you must first be your, ser- be your servant, just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus turned what the world saw as greatness upside down. So he had every reason to elevate himself, but he chose the road of the servant. What does true servanthood look like? Romans 12.1, we have it on the screen. It says here, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This verse really sets the pace for our understanding of true servanthood. So let's take a look at some key principles. J.B. Phillips rephrases the verse, and he says, With eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, brothers and sisters, as an act of intelligent worship, give up your bodies as a living sacrifice consecrated to him and acceptable by God. So the first thing we're going to look at is in view of God's mercy. In other words, when we serve, it is in view of all that God has done for us, all the grace he has given us, the love that he's poured out, all the blessings we have in our lives. This deals with the servant's motivation. A true servant of God does not serve with an eye on gaining something from God. Rather, it's servanthood because of all that God has done for us. Too often, Christians, and myself included, we serve God from the wrong motivation. It can be out of a sense of duty. I do this because, well, the Bible tells me so. And I am doing the right thing if I'm a Christian and I'm doing this, out of a desire to gain acceptance. People are going to like me more when I serve. I want people to see me loving because I want that image for myself. Out of a drive to gain points with God, God will bless me if I serve him. I want a good job. 
I want a good family, a big house. I want a, a spouse. I want, you know, whatever it is. Sometimes our attitude and the way that we approach worship, sorry, servanthood, is we want to gain something from God. And the last one is out of a need to prove something to others. Internally, we might not be feeling good enough about ourselves, so we constantly try so hard to serve and to do things, but really it's because we have a need within us that's not being met. We are internally feeling insecure in who we are. See, understanding God's love, grace, and mercy is the key to true servanthood. It is because I've been blessed by God. It is because I've been accepted by God. It is because God has extended his rich mercy upon my life that I now serve him. Second is living sacrifice. So in other words, it's an ongoing sacrifice. We looked earlier at the Garden of Eden and chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3. And if you do go down a bit lower um, than the verses that we just look, looked at, we'll notice that uh, Adam and Eve, they felt ashamed. So they hid from God. But what did God do? He killed animals and he gave them clothes, a covering for themselves to hide their shame and their sin. That act by God was the first ever sacrifice within the Bible. And because of that, we know how the story goes in terms of the history. Man then began to make sacrifices to God. And of course, when Jesus died and he rose again, he became that last sacrifice. But interestingly, in this verse, it says that we are to give up ourselves daily as a living sacrifice. We no longer need to, you know, kill a bull or kill our pet dog and burn it on an altar and, you know, pray to God, you know, and for him to cleanse our sins. We don't need to do that. But this, what this verse does tell us is that we are to offer up our lives as a living sacrifice. And in the Old Testament, often when somebody would make a sacrifice, the smell, the aroma that would go out from the sacrifice was considered, was said to be considered soothing to God. I want to ask you, how does your aroma smell? How does your living sacrifice smell? Next slide. Is it acceptable to God? When we are sacrificing, we, when we sacrifice, when a sacrifice is pleasing the Lord, it will be a soothing aroma. So true servanthood. That's what I'm encouraging you guys to think about today. What is true servanthood? Let's have a look at what it is not. So self-righteous service. Next slide, please. Number one, it comes from human effort. It requires external rewards. 
Jeremiah 3, 2, sorry, 13. It's one of my favorite verses, and you might have heard me mention it before. But Jeremiah speaks to the nation of Israel, and he says to them, My people have committed two sins. You have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and you have dug your own cisterns. So cisterns in those days were these large barrels in which they kept outside of the house. And during the raining seasons, the rain would come down and it would fill these barrels. And during the dry seasons, it meant that the family could draw water from that barrel to bathe, to drink, to cook with. And Jeremiah says to the people, you've committed two sins. You have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and you have dug your own cisterns. The issue with cisterns is that it leaks. It is unsustainable. The water goes in, but when the sun comes out, it scorches the water. But we have an option. Jesus is the spring of living water. Jesus has the life that we desire. So when it comes from self-righteous human effort, it's like we're digging our own cisterns. We can be doing all the right things, but the motive is wrong. And eventually we get tired and we wonder why we feel dry. Highly concerned about results. Picks, self-righteous surface picks and chooses who to serve. So there are some people we have in our lives that we will serve wholeheartedly and others perhaps, you know, maybe they're a bit below you. They pick and choose who to serve. It is affected by moods and whims. It is temporary. What is true service? It comes from the living water. It comes from the inside out. It comes from the acknowledgement and the sacrifice and the surrenderance to Jesus. It comes from the inside out. It rests contended in hiddenness. It doesn't require people to praise you. I think this is something that I struggled with, is the fact that, you know, I might be slaving away doing something, but then nobody notices. And a part of me is like, oh, that kind of, you know, sucks a bit. (laughs) But true servanthood rests in the contendedness of being hidden because it's not about who sees you, but it's about God. Who are we serving in our lives? Is free of the need to compare yourselves to others, puts others above yourselves, is indiscriminate in its ministry. So there's no small or large service that's below you. You might be somebody who preaches on the stage, worships at the front, but is still happy to clean the toilet. It's indiscriminate in its ministry. Ministers faithfully because there's a need. So they have eyes that see a need within a community and they don't necessarily need to be asked, but they step forward because of a love for Jesus Christ. That's the community that I would love to see here. It is a lifestyle and true service builds community. Self-righteous service is temporary, but true service builds a community up. 
and we learn to go beyond the feeling that we deserve results for our effort for others. True service works humility into our lives. It is out of the overflow of devotion and requires a surrenderance of self. Next slide. So whatever you do now, church, as we leave here today and as we reflect on our lives, work at it with all your heart as if you are working for the Lord and not for man. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Jesus Christ you are serving. I don't know if many of you guys know this, but every single time leading up to a sermon, I get so nervous the week before. I can't sleep. I get these headaches because I'm cl I clench my teeth too tightly. I get dreams about it. Like I actually go through the message in my dreams, which is terrible because in your dreams, you always muddle everything up and then it sort of gets you a bit, I guess, um, out of step on the day. But this is something that I've struggled with. And every single time when I come before God, he challenges me, who are you serving? Are you serving man or are you serving me? When I start thinking about how people are going to receive the message and whether or not I'll say things the right way because I have a tendency sometimes to say things backwards. You know, God reminds me, am I serving, are you serving me or are you serving man? And I think that's something that we need to continuously remind ourselves. And I guess lastly, I want to encourage you, don't be discouraged if you do fall short of selfless serving because God does work through imperfect people regardless. He does work through our brokenness. And sometimes we will have mixed motives when we come before servanthood, but the key is surrenderance to Jesus. Surrenderance of self is the undoing of what happened in the Garden of Eden. So I'll just take a moment, get the band to come up. And I want to encourage you, just take a moment, let's close our eyes and just have a little bit of time before you and God. Because God sees the nature of your heart. If we are to be the living sacrifice that is spoken about in Romans, because when that happens and we start to walk in that, when our lives become that soothing aroma, when we start to live out true servanthood, our whole lives become an act of true, beautiful worship that goes beyond what happens here on a Sunday. But the way that we live and act and treat one another, it shifts and it changes. That is the heart that Jesus desires. So I encourage you right now, just between you and God, say, God, I want to surrender. I want to surrender self. The enemy thought that he had us when he tempted Adam and Eve and they made that bold decision to elevate themselves and defy God's plan. But Jesus came 
and he defeated that. We have victory over that because of Jesus. And us as the community of God, the body of God, we just need to acknowledge and surrender daily. It's a living sacrifice. It's an ongoing sacrifice that we need to do daily. I just want to leave us with a quote. You can open your eyes. <laughs> um, Richard J. Foster writes in his book, Celebration of the Disciplines. And if you guys wanted a book to kind of read, especially because we are going through spiritual disciplines at the moment, this is a good one. And he says, the most radical social teaching of Jesus was total reversal of the contemporary notion of greatness. Leadership is found in becoming a servant of all. Power is discovered in submission. The foremost symbol of his radical servanthood is the cross. Let's look to the cross today and let's go into worship with a surrendered heart and a heart that looks towards the, all the mercies and the love that God has poured out towards us.